So good evening. I'm excited to uh, talk about faith with you this evening and to share some reflections on my life and also um, on how we can cultivate, uh, as Gil was saying last night, we cultivate these uh, liberative uh, practices of dependent arising. And I like to think of faith as, uh, as what got us here. You know, faith is what got us in this room miraculously, <laughs> that we would be this collection, this bouquet, this, this arising, if you will, of uh, all the conditions uh, that made it possible for us to kind of miraculously show up in this room. Uh, as uh, Adrian often says, uh, waking up in truth together. So I, I want to talk about suffering as this supporting condition to faith. And um, I want to start with, a, with something that James Baldwin wrote. He said that people who do not suffer cannot grow up can never discover who they are. And I, can, I really resonate with the, the gateway of suffering that leads us to um, a relationship, our intimacy with faith, or a deepening of our understanding of faith. So my journey was definitely through the door of suffering. Um, it was a lot of things, but you know how suffering always seems to stand out more than anything else. <laughs> and um, I grew up in the heat of the civil rights movement in South Central Los Angeles in a family of eight children, and I was number five. And um, we grew up in an environment where there was a lot of... Um, a lot of violence, a lot of fear, and a lot of jazz. <laughs> and um, we went to church every Sunday because my mother played the piano in the church and we all sang in the choir whether we liked it or not. And um, my mother was a musician and um, the whole relationship with faith at that time was that it was, uh, you had to be obedient. You had to do as I say. You didn't question, uh, uh, you know, God or Jesus. And, um, and so there was a lot of um, feelings I had about that that I couldn't really do anything with. And it was a funny thing with this belief that I saw so pervasive in our family around faith in the church. Because one of the most potent images I had around seven years old was watching my great-grandmother who would pace back and forth on the floor just worried and weary and afraid for her children, afraid for the black babies that she couldn't protect. And it was just, it, just, it was a weariness to the bones that she walked with. And I remember uh, when she died or before she died, I remembered how painful it was that I couldn't comfort her. I didn't know how to do that at seven. And I didn't see anybody else quite knowing how to do that. And um, so that was, that, that was a moment when I said to myself, I ain't going out like this. There was some deal I made with myself. And the pain of that witnessing, that was significant uh, to me at seven years old, because the atmosphere was such an atmosphere of survival and um, all kind of creativity in the mix of it, but mostly just, just a norm of suffering and struggle. And I remember um, at the age of 17, my father was murdered and he was murdered by a, a, his girlfriend in a jealous rage. 
she shot him. And I don't remember the trauma of that in the moment, but what I remember in that moment was how tightly I held my son and how tightly I had been holding him ever since and every other child I can get my arms around. And it would take many years before I was able to thaw out and really grieve uh, the trauma of that experience. But it was another moment where I said to myself, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. It just, it just can't, this just can't be how it is. So I went through a long period of time of, of rage and, you know, rough relationships and uh, trying to figure things out and different religious experiences and, um, you know, travel and a, a lot of things that gave me a lot of exposure to a lot of things, but the fundamental um, vibe that I walked in the world with was, was just really a lot of rage. And so by the time I was 27 years old, I had open-heart surgery with a mitral valve prolapse, which I think was related to the, the holding, the chronic holding in life that I had not only been doing in my life, but through generations. And, you know, many of us can relate to this kind of way that we learn how to hold it together, keep it together, and move through life. And what was remarkable about the surgery was my, I come from a family that was afraid of the, the medical um, hospitals and doctors. There was a lot of fear in the black community about what they did with black bodies. We had lost a couple of relatives. The story was they went in for a cold and never came home, you know. So at 27, for me to go into the hospital and have them work on my heart was something my mother just had a very difficult time with. And what I was realizing was that this surgeon was going to have more access to my heart than I did and that there was something about that that was pivotal in understanding uh, that this surgical, uh, this heart thing was a surgical procedure that was beginning to show me that I was about on the edges of a spiritual uh, opening, a surgical, a spiritual opening. And what I realized in the recovery of that, which was my first silent retreat, <laughs> where, you know, there was just such weakness and such fatigue and such a, 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 a being shocked back in the body, but also resting in my own skin, really had me um, go into some places of deep inquiry because I think suffering fundamentally requires you to question how you're living your life. So after I got my body a little regulated and started to feel some confidence and um, uh, kind of remembering who I was, uh, a lot of other things were happening in my life. But I remember having a, a dream. Uh, it was in Santa Cruz, and I had just fallen in love with a woman, and all of a sudden life was just so amazing and fabulous for the, what felt like the first time. And, you know, and my mother was, was questioning me about, you know, I thought I told you about those girls. And I said, yeah, but, but you didn't tell me, you know, you didn't tell me enough, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> you know how you hear things for a long time and it doesn't mean anything until, you know, so she knew more than I did before I knew it, so... Uh, so, so it was this glorious heart opening time and freedom and uh, uh, just a new dance and relationship with love. And I was living in Santa Cruz. I was in graduate school and, um, and this was all happening. And, you know, when you live in Santa Cruz, uh, you do everything Santa Cruz, you know. So they had every spiritual materialism you can imagine that you could take advantage of. So... I remember going to this dream workshop and the dreams were really multiplying and one thing, one dream I had was, was this, um, I saw myself 
fat and content, sitting on a flower in the middle of a still lake. The, sh- the sun was shining and the birds were singing my favorite song. And it was thundering and lightning outside and, and I was sitting in the middle of this lake, this big body with, with, with my face on it. And uh, I remember the, the, the rain and storm that was hailing down on me had chiseled images of people I had been in conflict with and uh, body parts and people I had had, uh, you know, relationships with. And it's the, like all these shivered pieces of my life was storming down on this big body that was content. And what was amazing about the image and the dream was just how unmoved this person was that had my face on it was sitting in the middle of it and I think what I tasted in that dream was something very profound that I didn't understand Um, but what I got a taste of was that it's possible to feel ease and no contentment and to not be rocked by the storms in the world so that was an amazing experience, unlike anything else. Now, I blame it on just coming out as lesbian, but, I mean, other people had other ideas. I think it was a little deeper than that. And then I uh, went to, um, many years later, I met Dr. Um, Marlene Jones Schoonover. Some of you may know her. She was on the board of Spirit Rock in the mid 90s, uh, African-American woman who was uh, a beautiful uh, Dharma teacher and also a um, uh, very passionate about diversifying spirit rock and having it be inclusive and lovely for all beings. So I'm in China and I meet this, I meet Marlene in China. We're both staring at this two-story golden Buddha. And um, somehow or another, we're standing next to each other. We both had big hair. I used to have big hair, long dreadlocks. And we've got tears going down our eyes, falling down our eyes as we look at this Buddha. And she turns to me. Now, this Buddha is looking like the dream I had a few years earlier. And um, she looks at me and she says, she turns to me and she says, do you meditate? And I said, well, no, not really. And she says, so where do you live? And I said, I live in the Bay Area. And only people from the Bay Area say they live in the Bay Area in China to a perfect stranger because (laughs) you just assume everybody knows where the Bay Area is, right? So the Bay Area. And um, her response was, I do too. And I'm thinking, how, what are the chances, right? So she says, um, I, I'm on the board at Spirit Rock, and I want you to come and meditate with me. And we need you there, and I want you on the diversity council. And I'm standing there thinking, this woman, this stranger who I don't know, sure wants a lot. <laughs> and I, now we might have big hair and, you know, <laughs> looking at this Buddha, but I don't know about all of this. Well, uh, after a while, we got back to the States and stayed in contact with each other and became very deep friends. And, um, and she says, you know, I want you to come out here. She brought me here on a Monday night to one of Jack's talks. And she said, I want you to meet my teacher. And I said, okay. So Jack, um, this is what Jack said then, and this is what he continues to say and this was, the, this was a real ringer that got me uh, feeling like this could be my home. He says, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, of the awakened one, remember who you really are. Because the element of the truth seeker is within you, there's a part of you that already knows who you are and wants to awaken to this mystery. And because this is a part of who you are, it takes you on this journey of discovery. I'm still not sure if that's what the Buddha said or if that's what Jack said, but in that moment, they were one and the same. (laughs) And I fell in love with his heart and his 
faith and his transmission in what he was saying, all of which I didn't have a word for, but if I had to have a word for it, it would be faith. And Spirit Rock became my sangha for a number of years. And it felt like a bit of a homecoming. It was a turning for me. And right at the, shortly after that, after Arlene had been very pivotal in organizing the first African-American retreat here at Spirit Rock, uh, Jack and nine other women of color formed a council circle, and we met for 10 years. We call it, you know, nine people of color and Jack, but, you know, <laughs> And we met for 10 years in the Bay Area once a month for a, for a good half a day and shared our lives and shared the Dharma. And Marlene was a part of that group. And it was a real uh, amazing time in my life and a time of faith. And it was in that experience that I started to connect the dots that that dream I had of the fat guy sitting on the flower was the Buddha and my own Buddha nature, you know, sitting in the seat of, um, of um, the Dharma in a, in a peaceful war with Mara. And it, it, a lot of things started to come together uh, for me at that time. So this is, uh, and I'm still learning. Uh, it's, uh, that was back in 95, 96. And I feel like the path continues to unfold and I continue to find out uh, what I don't know and uh, relearn things in different ways. And faith uh, has certainly um, been what I renew with regularity. So this journey of mine is, is, you know, I don't want you worrying about me as I tell these, you know, heart surgery murders, you know. But what I want you to reflect on is your own life and your own journey. And what I want you to keep in mind is that the people in this room sitting next to you in silence would probably shock you about, about if they were to spend some time telling you about their lives and their journey to the Dharma. Because we all have had one on some level of how we enter and miraculously end up for months on a cushion at Spirit Rock and other places. So the invitation is to reflect on your life, you know, prior to the Dharma. What got you here? What faith supported you in making a decision to commit to be here for one or two months? What, what, who was that masked man? You know, what is it that keeps your heart leaning in the direction of the Dharma, trusting in these teachings? So that's what we're exploring this evening. So faith can be understood in, uh, as the beginning of the Buddhist path as we look at these um, dependent uh, arisings. And there's two Pali words that seem to speak to faith. One is pasada, which is suggesting a peaceful confidence, trusting, uh, a, a trusting as in trusting heart, Calmness, a meditative mind, clarity, and a faith that is connected to investigation and examination. So that's pasada. And then sada is, is interpreted as confidence, conviction, trust, esteem, respect. It's an attitude of faith that mobilizes a leap of faith, if you will, a turning into the unknown. It's a faith that also is a result of hearing the Dharma, where you hear the Dharma and then you're kind of like, there's a gravitational pull as if you're being pulled home. 
And um, it's often uh, reinterpreted as to give one's, uh, to give over one's heart. So it's not a faith that's a destination. It's a faith that leads you to verify for yourself what you have faith in. The Buddha tells us to know for ourselves. Know for yourself what is true. And Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about faith. He compares faith to a hand and a seed. He compares it to a hand, he says, in that it is needed to take hold of beneficial practices. And it's compared as a seed because it is the vitalizing germ for the growth of higher virtues. And I associate faith from my own path as an agreement with the heart. And I relate to it in my own experience as inspiration, aspiration, and cultivation. So there's different types of faith that we can experience. There's uh, blind faith. There's blind faith was Dr. Uh, Schoonover Marlene saying, hey, just come over here with me. Come hang out with me at Spirit Rock. I want you here. Um, I uh, resonated with her uh, as a woman of color that was outside the mainstream of Christianity that I was, had been raised in. And there was uh, lovely magnetism because I saw her heart and I saw her ease and I saw her devotion to this practice. And um, she appeared to be able to uh, sit with discomfort with a bit more ease than I was at the time. So that was a hand for me, and that was a blind faith. I didn't know so much about the Dharma, but I was real interested in knowing about her. And I had to wonder sometime if I was flirting or if it really was the Dharma. I, I wasn't sure. <laughs> So there can be that blind faith, and then there's bright faith, hearing the Dharma, hearing the teachings. When I went to that talk with Jack, you know, the transmission that happens, that, that resonance that you feel, that deep knowing that you can touch into when you hear the Dharma, it's kind of got a wow factor to it. It's like you know what you are hearing makes sense, and it's true. Awestruck, the heart is pierced. Uh, something's happening. Something is possible. It's a leaning towards. Um, hearing the teachings has its own power, but the Buddha was instructed in us, and not just instructing us to not just hear the Dharma, but to take the Dharma to heart to have it be a practice, to know for ourselves. And then there's a leap of faith, that turning where you find yourself saying yes, or that place where you make a commitment, and it's kind of like, I'm going for it, you know? There was something about the Dharma that was telling me something very different from the teachings I had in church on Sunday. And I was beginning to see that I could have a non-dependent relationship with faith, which was significant to me. It was significant to where I was in my life. That it wasn't so much about dependence on something as much as it was about a recognition of our interdependence. So this leap of faith is the faith to let go of our convention and explore new territory. It's when the need for change outweighs the present conditioning, the present conditions. And it's a curiosity and willingness to reorient your habitual response to life. So many of us have leapt into the Dharma. 
And this leap of faith into the Dharma, um, faith uh, taking refuge is one of the first things we begin to um, orient ourselves around in this tradition. And this taking of refuge is what cultivates faith, the taking of refuge. The Buddha teaches us that be one's own refuge, have the Dharma as refuge, and make yourself a refuge for all beings. So with, again, hearing the teachings, the Buddha, our own Buddha nature, be our own refuge, um, we can see that on some levels we have faith in the historical Buddha who lived in a body and, um, uh, you know, practiced as, as uh, a human in the flesh and woke up. Um, and um, in similar ways, we can begin to see taking refuge in the Buddha by um, looking at our teachers, looking uh, at how the teachers that we find ourselves attracted to. We have faith in the teacher and faith in the teachings. The embodiment of our teacher's practice is uh, something that we borrow that faith for a while until we've been able to cultivate our own. And what we see in our teachers is that um, we can see what's possible here and now, how this practice is actually lived here and now through somebody that's just not seeing what the Buddha said, but how they are, what their own transmission is. I remember being in India, I went with a group of women to study the um, architecture of the ancient temples between Kerala and Madras. Uh, we studied the temple architecture, we studied textiles, and we also studied uh, classical dance. And we got stuck in an airport getting to um, Kerala. And I had a chance encounter with the Dalai Lama. So I'm up real early in the morning because we're connecting our uh, flight that got delayed the night before. And um, I, we were supposed to meet in the lobby by 6.30 and I was the only one there because, you know, that's how it goes <laughs> sometimes. Uh, often, too often. But <laughs> <laughs> and then one other woman showed up in our group and we're sitting there waiting for the rest of the crew, and all of a sudden we hear this roar moving through the lobby. This was like a condemned hotel. Uh, and we heard, we heard this roar, and then all of, the, all of, the, all of this color, you know, the, these robes kind of came around the, the corner, and we were like trying to figure out what happened. I was not involved in Buddhism at the time. And what we saw was this man, the Dalai Lama, uh, because I'd seen his picture, he floats through. I mean, it literally feels like he's, he's the movement was so smooth and easeful. Um, and he paused and looked at both of us and bowed. It was that glance of mercy that you hear about in the teachings. And we just literally fell to our knees. It was the most piercing presence I had ever experienced. And I was like, who is this robed man moving <laughs> through here? You know, it was one of those moments where you can, again, feel um, a connection, a deep something or other that you recognize and you know is, is, is not separate from who you are. And you, you want the desire to go in that direction is, is, is very compelling. You see the Buddha nature, you see the reflection of your deep self in the face of a beloved like the Dalai Lama. So I wanna say a little bit more about choosing a teacher because that's sometimes what we put our faith in as we're on this journey. And we want to be, uh, we'll have many teachers in the course of our path, and that's okay. Um, uh, but, you know, we want to choose a teacher uh, who teaches by example. Uh, 
who uses their life as the teaching, who practices but yet is not perfect, you know, and is willing to be uplifting and inspiring and dignified and secure in the presence of who they are. Someone who have learned from their own suffering, from their own regrets and from their own conflicts. And someone who does not apologize for having joy and um, who delights in serving others. These are some of the qualities that I think support us cultivating our own faith. And a teacher that's, that, that's good company, that you enjoy learning from and being around. <coughs> So taking refuge in the Buddha nature, in the Buddha, our Buddha nature, the one who knows, trusting, having faith, growing confidence in the one who knows. I had a person that I went through the dedicated practitioner program here at uh, Spirit Rock. (coughs) Her, Her name was Joan Wilkie, and she said, Uh, Jesus is my Lord and personal Savior, but the Buddha left instructions. (laughs) And this this is related to taking refuge in the Dharma. This is where we apply the teachings. There's something lovely about having those lists, especially when you're starting to rest in and... um, and practice. It's so helpful to have that guidance and instructions and this path, this noble eightfold path that was laid out so brilliantly, that's been walked by so many others. Uh, The path is well walked. I mean, we can can trust and we can have confidence uh, in the people that's come before us, the people that support us. So there's a verified faith that we begin to cultivate as we take refuge in the Dharma. The Buddha's Dharma in the reframe from the Pali Canon reads, directly available in the here and now, open to all, leading towards awakening, to be experienced by the wise for themselves. This is a verified faith from our direct experience. Confidence in the path comes with walking the path, from living the practice, knowing directly, investigating, seeing life as a series of practices, practices that we do, that we just you know we're we're you know we're we we are beings in practice i'm a guiding teacher at insight meditation community of washington and jonathan faust who is uh, when i did my first retreat there and i was new to teaching um uh, he he's he's a funny guy i don't know if you know him but um he gave me some instruction when, about teaching and he said, the only thing you need to do when you're teaching is to, to, re- to do two things. Say, this is what the Buddha said. So know what the Buddha said. And then this is how you know it to be true. That's, that's what you focus on in teachings. So you're teaching from your own experience. You know, I may not be able to teach some of the thing, everything that the Buddha taught, but I can teach from my experience and other teachers teach what they have. It's their dana. It's their offering. And there's something very um, faith-building about the integrity of staying close to what you deeply know directly, what you know directly. And this supports faith. And it's also healthy to have some doubt when you are in your inquiry and when you're you know, looking at your practice. Questioning is a good thing. Wholesome doubt invites us to question more intentionally and more intensely. And this is a rigor that builds confidence and faith. 
through our practice, we verify what faith is. And this is a practice of mature reflection when we are not just hearing the Dharma, but also integrating the Dharma into our lives. And this is what taking refuge in the Dharma speaks to that supports the cultivation of faith. And then there's taking refuge in the Sangha, sharing the teachings through our relationships, through our connection, joining hands, if you will. And uh, we purify the heart through the Sangha, through our practices, and we polish ourselves. Uh, We kind of really get a sense of what's happening. Where's my Rumi poem? Rumi says that the rose's rarest essence lives in the thorns. So we get to smell the the essence of the rose through the thorn of our relatedness. So here's suffering again. (laughs) So through our own example, we uh, take refuge in uh, each other and in our waking up to how we impact each other in our lives. So, you know, and it's important in, in looking at faith that uh, we understand that um, everybody in, 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 our, in our field of, of relationship is not all in this practice. You know, they have different views, they have um, uh, different experiences in their lives, different journeys that take it, that's taken them to different places. And a real test of faith is how we show up in the practice in those moments. It's not so easy. So we're not going to be free from suffering when we cultivate faith, but we're going to be challenged with how we, um, how we practice. And sometimes we lose faith on the journey. Uh, I've lost faith many times uh, in our, uh, towards our humanity. Uh, it was a real uh, difficult time with the with the killings of of um, people by the police, and uh, the root of that in my own experience with the loss of my father and my grandmother who couldn't protect her babies, and me still holding and feeling the grip of that that was so uh, vivid in in our community. There's an uprising in our uh, states right now towards people throughout, and not just in our states, but throughout the world. Uh, People, uh, especially since this new administration has been in office, we can feel the pain of it, and we know that in our own hearts. And then we're challenged with how we, where's our faith in those moments? And then there's struggles, even within our spiritual communities. And there can be a loss of faith in terms of where are we, you know, around our diversity issues, our issues of inclusion, and how does faith look in those moments? How does love look in those moments? So loss of faith brings us to the question of, and what do I place my faith in? Why did I choose this path? What was I hoping for? And what do I know to be true? So we can re-examine our, our lives, our practice, despite worldly appearances, despite the irritation. We can drop below the turbulence of our time and refresh or remind ourselves of what we take refuge in and stay as close to the present moment as we can. I have a Tibetan teacher that I worked with for a number of years. Um, She's passed away, Abba Cecile Mahardi. She was a real character. She told me the story of the Buddha going, was in a 100-story building 
that caught on fire at the top and somebody threw him out the window to save his life. And around the 50th floor, a woman saw him falling to the ground and shouted out, oh my gosh, are you okay? And the Buddha says, well, so far so good. (laughs) So it's kind of like that, you know. Hadn't hit ground yet. You know, it's not a problem yet. And we're challenged with that sometimes with faith. You know, where are you right now? Because the mind, you know, these minds... So we can recommit to what we directly know to be true. We can remind ourselves. And we can know suffering and also know we're okay in the face of it. Ajahn Suchito says, faith is a sustained wonder. Faith is a sustained wonder. And I heard a story that um, Soyan Rinpoche said, was uh, about him that went like this. He said that a student came to him and the student said, I want to be liberated, but I don't know, but I don't follow the breath. I don't sit well. I just don't do anything well. And Rinpoche said, well, what did you do in your previous life? And he said, I was a thief. And Rinpoche said, great, then Steal your thoughts and place them on the altar of presence. So can we stay with what's here without our stories and stay close to our direct experience and be willing to look at the layers that's on top of that, but staying close in. So a few ideas on just how to practice with this. Your practice supports faith. Everything we've been doing on this retreat has been in support of faith, building confidence. And it's useful uh, when we can continue to be in the practice of abandoning the unwholesome and cultivating uh, wholesome mind states. That's a practice really looking at the hindrances and the seven factors and the four foundations, the compassion and metta practices, gratitude. And do a practice for a period of time. You know, stay with it and see what it can teach you, what you can learn from it. And just that rigor, again, without effort, it, it cultivates, it's, it's polishing the jewel that you are. You can inquire in any moment, uh, what am I taking refuge in? This is really helpful in moments of conflict because we place refuge oftentimes in things that uh, are impermanent, like the wheel of our mind and over-efforting. Or we take refuge in what we can physically do or know how to do. And true refuge is more looking at at the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, you know, and where that fundamental baseline is in our practice. We can also, um, uh, the Buddha tells us to associate with people of integrity. This is also a Sangha practice, really watching where your energy uh, is and rather is being fortified and supported uh, through your relationships with other people where you spend your time. There's a, it makes sense to be in community and sangha where that nourishment is happening, where there's ceremony and devotion and dance and joy and um, care for each other in creative ways in necessary ways. There's much work to be done. And so taking our vows, caring for the earth, um, understanding, again, our interdependence. I'm still learning about faith. My own faith is deepening. 
it's nice to be able to look back on my life and uh, sometimes we get faith in retrospect when we look back and we see, oh wow, it's, I'm not as gripped as I used to be. I'm not as, uh, it's not as hard as, as it once was. And we can take the refuge vows daily and just remind ourselves. I have faith in the generations. You know, I, I think about my great-grandmother who um, would be happy to know that her pacing and worry is now my walking meditation. Um, I have faith in the heart's capacity to be broken and repaired and healed and open and expanded to reshape how I'm relating to the world. I have faith in that. I have some direct experience in that. I have faith in impermanence, um, that I've shifted from being a full-time rager to rage as a teacher to then writing a book about it. And I have faith in the continuing legacy that Marlene Jones Schoonover brought me into here at Spirit Rock. And that she was glad to be, she would be very glad to see me sitting in this seat teaching as an African-American woman with people of color yogis on both sides of me that are in the teacher training program. And that there are so many more in this community, in this retreat. Um, People of color, alphabet, community that is going through the teacher training program to really enhance a deeper faith in what we're capable of as humans. I have faith in the generations. So this talk is a reminder for us to trust our lives and to, uh, it's useful to reflect on our lives often. You know, to take the pulse of where you are and in what are you placing your faith in. And to remember that we don't do this for ourselves. You know, sometimes we come to practice and we're kind of funneled right into our our practice and it's our pain and what's happening to our lives. Remember the people sitting right next to you. You don't, they may not live next door to you, but they are your neighbors. (laughs) And they have a story. There's a lot that's there as we sit in this sangha soup together and deepen our heart. It's not just, we're supporting each other through this practice. That's a faith practice, showing up, committing to being here. Ganja White uh, wrote a poem that I feel really reflects the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. She says, what if our religion was each other? If our practice was our life? If prayer, our words? What if the temple was the earth? If forests were our church? If holy water, the rivers, lakes, and ocean? What if meditation was our relationships? If the teacher was life itself? If wisdom was self-knowledge? If love was the center of all beings? So faith, sada, is cultivated through refuge. Be one's own refuge, have the Dharma as a refuge, make yourself a refuge for all beings. Let's sit together for a few minutes.
O nobly born, sons and daughters of the awakened one, remember who you are. Because the element of the truth seeker is within you, there is a part of you that already knows who you are and wants to awaken to this mystery. Because this is a part of you, it takes you on this journey of discovery, of faith. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.